Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. It's good to have you listening. When our guest rambles through a summer meadow or walks into quiet woods, his ears are filled with the voices of old friends. What sounds like chirping and twittering and singing to many of us is what he describes as a news banner with subtly scrolling updates. I love that. Birding, Christian Cooper tells us in his new book, served as a refuge to a boy who was an outsider, a boy who was black and queer and nerdy. In my life, he adds, it has been a window into the wondrous. Christian Cooper is a comics writer and the host of National Geographic's Extraordinary Birder. His new memoir is titled Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. Christian, it's good to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Carrie. We have the power of audio here, so I would love for you to school me and how to deconstruct a bird call, what to listen for, and how that gives you clues into which bird it is. So I thought we would start with one, and this is a bird that I hear almost every morning in my backyard in the summer. So let's listen. Okay, Christian, before you tell me which bird you think that is, tell me what you listen for when you listen for bird calls. Well, it's funny. You know, people think, oh, my God, that's an incredible ability. You know, there must be a rare handful of people who can do that. <laughs> everybody does that. Every, absolutely everybody does that. And what do I mean by that? You know, the phone rings, you pick up the phone and you hear, hello, dear, how are you? They don't have to say, it's your mother. You can tell from the tone of voice, from the word choice, from the intonation. And you, you're not even thinking about it. Your subconscious just immediately says, mom. And that's exactly what's happening after you reach a certain point with bird songs. You know, it, you're, it's not even conscious. It, it's just you're reacting to a whole bunch of different things, not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. So it's something anybody can do. Like, you know, you're, you're in a car and you hear a new song you've never heard before, but you recognize the voice and you like, you're like, oh, uh, Taylor Swift has a new song out because, you know, you're reacting mm-hmm. subconsciously to a whole bunch of cues that let you know this is a Taylor Swift song. So it's the same with, with birds. So to break it down on a conscious level as to what I heard in that, the, the thing that jumped out for me right away was the, the voice quality. There's a very sonorous, um, ringing, bell-like quality to that particular song. And then had a very particular regular cadence. So it was like... (laughs) And those are the hallmarks (laughs) of the Northern Cardinal. Oh my gosh, you're you're good. But that's probably an easy one. I was just about to say I was having a panic attack, like, oh boy, here's where I flub it, and I don't know what it is. But you gave me an easy one. (laughs) Um, you know, what I'm suggesting is if, if many of us who are totally amateur birders would, would tune in more, I think we'd have a touch of the experience that you have, which is when you, as I said, you walk into the woods or you walk into your backyard, those sounds pierce through a lot of the other ambient noise. 
And after reading your book, I've understood more how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It pierces through the ambient noise. I can. I live in New York City. I could be walking down a busy New York City, New York City Avenue with traffic going and construction going and a siren going by, and I'm having a conversation at the same time. And a kestrel will call and that will cut right through. And I'm like, oh, there's an American kestrel here. And my head will shoot up and I'll start scanning the sky for where it is. Um, so it will absolutely knife through all the other things. That's why I say it's like a police scanner that's always running because, you know, something comes through, eh, 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 alert, pay attention, and you're focused. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a, it's a useful skill to have. Um, the thing I always tell people is the way the way I developed it and what I advise people to do and other people may have other ways. But what I find most helpful is if you hear something you don't recognize, spend the time to track it down and find it, you know, the 20 minutes, however long it takes. um, And until you see that bird's mouth moving and its tail bobbing as it emits that sound, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you could be faked out. You could think you're looking at the bird that's making that song when actually there's another bird in the shrub that's actually doing it and you've been fooled. So, but once you do that, you hear the song repeatedly over and over again as you're trying to track down the bird. And then when you finally see it, it imprints. And from then on, that song mm-hmm. is associated with the memory. It's not just, you know, rote learning. There's a memory attached to that. So the next time you'll he- you hear it, you'll flash back to that moment that you were crawling under the shrub in your backyard for 20 minutes trying to find the bird. And you're like, I know what that is, you know, from that memory. So, Oh, that's fantastic. Because then you've got the vivid image to match to the sound. And we sure. know that when you match sound to imagery, right, it imprints, I think, more deeply into our and, memory. So, And you also get the sense of accomplishment. So, you know, that, that all of that sort of connects together to, I think, to make the memory a whole lot stronger than if you were just to listen to a bunch of record, recordings that told you, oh, this is the song of the Northern Cardinal. And that, you're not going to remember that. You know, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. <laughs> But And then what happens then is as you learn, you know, some of the common songs, you start to build on that knowledge and you're like, oh, okay, I've been told that the Scarlet Tanager sounds just like an American Robin, but with a sore throat. And sure enough, the first time I was working, walking through the woods and I'm like, well, gosh, that Robin sounds like it has a sore throat. And I finally got my binoculars on it and it was a Scarlet Tanager. So things like that help <laughs> you and you build your knowledge and you use mnemonics and, and it gets better and better. Okay, here's a bird that I have never seen. So even if I, I heard, and I have heard the calls, but I've never seen him. So I, I think, so I haven't had the experience that we've just described of imprinting the visual and the experience on the sound. But here it is. Let's see if you recognize it. I don't know that one. You stumped me, but I'm going to, is it maybe, maybe a screech owl? You are so close. You're very close. It's the boreal owl. Oh, it's the boreal owl. Yeah, no, I've only seen a boreal owl once and it was not vocalizing. Um, But boy, was it, was it a sighting for the ages? Because boreal owls are are hard to come by. Um, No, actually, no, I've seen a boreal owl twice now that I think about it. 
but neither was vocalized. Where were you? Where were you when you saw one? The first one I ever saw was in Central Park, and it was mm-hmm. a frigidly cold day. I mean, it was like, you know, minus 10 or something like that before the wind chill Fahrenheit. And I don't, I have a very low tolerance for cold weather. So I usually don't go out on a day like that. But I heard there was a boreal owl and I bundled up and I got out there. And sure enough, there it was and I saw it. And then the second boreal owl I saw was actually um, in Boston. And it was hanging out on one of the major thoroughfares in Boston in somebody's front yard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Everybody knew about oh it. Gosh. It was accessible by the T. Wow. So, you know, you just hop, hop on there underground and you're there. So I saw that one too. That's cool. Okay. So I'm going to give you a little hint for the next one. I've seen this bird in the forests of Costa Rica, which is just a a wonderland for bird watching, as you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so listen to the call. Let's see if you know what it is. I was in Costa Rica um, walking through a forest, and that bird was so loud, it was startling. Well, you, usually when, when they're that vocal in the tropics, um, they are in the parrot family, though I don't think this is a parrot. I'm, I'm not going to go with parrot for this. Um, what are you going to go gonna, with? Well, yeah, this is the thing. You've taken me outside my northeastern region, which is, you know, where I know my <laughs> birds. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, um, take a wild stab and say chestnut mandibled toucan. Oh, great green macaw. Oh, so it was a parrot. Look at that. <laughs> what, uh, so what, where, are the, where are the similarities between the, the parrot and the toucan? Well, I mean, they're, they're not songbirds, so they tend to have sort of loud, raucous voices. Um, uh, in fact, I, I have heard the chestnut mandible toucan, I, and that actually has a very distinctive voice, um, uh, though, you know, that one vocalization is not necessarily the only thing they do. So that's why I was like, all right, I'm going to go with the toucan. But the chestnut mandible mm-hmm. toucan uh, kind of goes, just today, just today is like uh, the sun is setting. I saw a bunch of them in a tree just throwing their heads back with those giant beaks crying out as if to say farewell to the sun, that, that, that cry that they do. Um, so that was glorious. Um, but yeah, if you, if you have something raucous in a tropical forest, yeah, odds are it, it could very well be a parrot. I should have stuck with the, with the parrot family. Macaws are in the parrot family. So here's my, here's my question about that. Are, when you hear a sound, a, a loud I mean, it almost sounds like kind of a warning sound from a bird. Are they alerting other birds that there was an intruder, me, in the forest? Is it a turf kind of thing? I mean, do you know how to interpret what a call like that might mean? Sure, it depends. Now, for example, with the species I'm familiar with, um, it's I'm pretty good at, at, at teasing apart the vocalizations, but generally with, with most birds, you can sort of, and certainly with the songbirds, you can divide the, their vocalizations broadly into songs and calls. Now songs are usually much more complicated, uh, much more mellifluous, and they're kind of like 
a bird's way of saying, I'm a black-throated green warbler. My name is Bob, and this is my territory. And if you're a female, <laughs> come on over. And if you're another male, get off my lawn. So that's, that's what a black-throated green warbler is saying when it says trees, trees, murmuring trees. But they also have calls, which tend to be much shorter and sharper. And that's more sort of like a, yo, hey, yo. And so that can either be used to keep in contact with others of the species in a flock, or a lot of times, and this is when they sound particularly sharp, um, is when they are sending out an alarm call because, let's say, there's a hawk nearby. And so they're mm. putting out the word that there's a predator. And the great thing is if you learn those alarm calls, calls if you learn to tune into them, then you can zero in on the fact that there's a predator around and start looking for it yourself and get to see a hawk or an owl, which of course we'd all love to see. So, I mean, certainly here uh, in, in my Manhattan apartment, you know, I've got lots of starlings, I've got lots of robins, and I know their alarm calls cold. So when I hear the, them sending up the alarm, I start scanning the sky for a kestrel or for a red-tailed hawk or every once in a while, which really makes me happy, a peregrine falcon. And so that's, that's great to see. Okay, I've got one more for you. And right. this is a bird that I hear a lot when I'm in Arizona. And I love this little, I mean, I've really learned to tune into this. I love this little scratchy sound. Let's All listen. All right, you're going outside my Northeast familiarity region again, but we'll, we'll give it our best go. <laughs> All right. Oh, wow. What do you think? That's super interesting. I'm, I'm going to say that's a hummingbird of some kind. Right on. You All are right. right. What, do, can, you, can you think of which kind? Oh, uh, I do not know my Arizona hummingbirds, so this will be an absolute guess. Uh, a calliope hummingbird. <laughs> Good guess. Anna's hummingbird. Anna's. Oh, that's interesting. And I, uh, I have seen Anna's. Was that, do you know if that was the song or, the, or some other uh, vocalization? Mm, you know, I hear that a lot and they cluster in trees. Mm. So, so I think it's, w w would we call that a song? I mean, you know, they well, do it together. I, well, yeah, they wouldn't really be doing it together, no. Um, but the, the song is, is I, I have heard Anna sing, and it's, it's very distinct from its sister hummingbird, the Costa's hummingbird. That's the one I know mm. super well because I spend a lot of time in Palm Springs. And when I first, mm. the first time I ever went to Palm Springs, you know, the California desert in this case, and I'm walking along and I'm like, oh, they have lots of electrical problems in this town because I can hear all this buzzing sound everywhere. And then finally I realized it's a bird and it's the coast is hummingbird because it sounds like the little tiniest person on the little tiniest zip line going. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's great. But Anna's is very distinct from that. Even, even though the two species are very, very close, um, they really are sister species. Um, the Anna's has a completely different voice, so that, that helps you separate them. Okay, so when, when I said they seem to do it together, I, I guess I meant there will be a number of hummingbirds in the area, and I will hear, not, not that they're, you know, collaborating or something, but 
I will hear them all making that sound. But you were kind of quick to say, now they don't do it together. Tell me well, why. Well, I, I, I guess because when they're singing, they're establishing a territory. And, and you know, like I said, saying, this is mine. If you're a female, come on over. And if you're male, get off my lawn. Because it's mostly the males who sing in most of the species. And it's a way of establishing a territory. So in other words, a bunch of males are not going to get together and sing it in a group because he's trying to exclude other males from his zone. Um, whereas if they're all at a feeder, uh, you know, if, if there's a group of them at a feeder, they may make vocalizations that are a way of keeping in, you know, chattering with each other and communicating who knows what, but those aren't going to be the same as the songs they make to establish territory. Hmm. If you're tuned in this morning and I'm glad you are, we are listening to bird calls with Christian Cooper. Uh, he's the author of a new book, new memoir titled better living through birding Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. He's also the host of National Geographic's Extraordinary Birder. You know, Christian, I'm really, I'm appreciative of what you've written about the experience of birding and the way you describe kind of slipping into this rhythm when you're in marshlands or woods or forests or on the dunes of a beach and you're really in your in your zone for birding, you write, a new dimension of a natural place is revealed as home to this other being of providing everything it needs. Will you, will you describe a little bit when you're really immersed in that experience of birding and the rest of the world recedes and you're, you're just kind of communing with the place and the creatures and the birds that, that are in that place? What's it like? Sure. I, I wouldn't say the rest of the world recedes. It's actually quite the opposite. You engage with the world around you in a way that is, is pretty deep, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so what recedes is, is more sort of your internal, your internal monologue. You know, whatever you were thinking about, whatever woes were, were bugging you. You know, for me as a kid, you know, growing up queer and uh, knowing that since I was five years old, and knowing to keep that hidden for all that time, you know, that was my particular problem that was weighing me down. And when I was out in nature, I couldn't focus on that problem. I had to focus on paying attention to a particular kind of movement that was distinct from a falling leaf or any other kind of windblown movement that would help me find the bird. I had to pay attention to what I was listening to, to try to find the bird. And as you do that, as you engage with the natural world around you, all the internal stuff has to, at least for a little while, fall away. And then you're drawn into this much larger world that has all of this other stuff going on. That, and, and you start to pay attention, attention to all of that. And you start to learn stuff just by observing about what's going on around you. Like, oh, that bird's pretty angry probably because I'm near its nest and look how it's beating its, its bill against the branch because it would rather be beating its bill against my head, but I'm too big. And so you learn about <laughs> redirected aggression and you, you just, you, you become totally absorbed and, and you start to realize that, oh yeah. And there's a way that I fit into this natural world too. So it's a very, it, it's a very, very engaging experience so it's not so much about the rest of the world fall, falling away as mm-hmm. opening yourself up to the rest of the world. Mm. You know, it sounds like you were 
that black, queer, nerdy kid, maybe not fully aware of your sexuality when you showed oh, up? No, fully. <laughs> uh, no, yes. Even yeah, when you oh, showed yeah. up, even when that that first uh, that first meeting with Elliot Kuttner? Oh, yeah. Your, your yeah. birding I, I, mentor? Uh, oh, yes, really? yes. I, I knew from about the age of five. So I, 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 was, oh. I was off early, off to the races early, knowing what was going on with me. So, yes, when I, when I met Elliot, who was my birding mentor, yeah, took me under his wing, literally and figuratively, um, <laughs> uh, that was already going on. So. Will you describe that first Sunday walk? Your dad took you. Right. Yes. Yes. My dad took me, you know, he, he knew he had a bird crazy son. And so he's like, all right, well, let me take him to a, a walk of the South Shore Audubon Society because I grew up on the South Shore of Long Island. So um, we went on the first walk. It was to Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge and, and we're walking along and, you know, Elliot had a scope and the bird was quite distant, but, you know, he got the scope on the bird took a quick look and said, oh, we've got a bunch of American woodcocks here. I'm like, oh, or a pair of American woodcocks. And I go up to the scope and I peer through the eyepiece and I'm like, hmm. And I, I said to my dad quietly aside, I'm like, I don't think those are woodcocks. I think they're snipe. <laughs> and he's like, well, go tell him. And I'm like, tell him? I'm not going to humiliate myself with that kind of... And so finally, he's like, go tell him. So I go up to, go up to Elliot very meekly and I'm like, um, I think actually those are snipes, not woodcocks. And he takes another look. This time looks for, you know, for real. And he looks back at me and he goes, why do you think they're snipes? And I'm like, well, because they have stripes on the head instead of the pattern that you find on woodcocks. And he goes, you're absolutely right, young man. This young man has corrected me. These are, these are snipes. And, you know, because he had a very ebullient personality. I mean, he was just out there and, and vivacious. And uh, from that moment on, he was like, oh, this one's mine. And he was uh, nurturing mm. my... my uh, birding habits as much as he could. You know, he, I, I loved what you wrote about him and how important he was in your life. He sounds like, you know, an evangelist for awe and joy. And everybody, especially every kid, needs somebody like that in their lives. He ended up being very important to you, it sounds like. Absolutely. And he was important in, important in a lot of people's lives, obviously, you know, his own families, but I mean, just all the people he touched with his energy and excitement for birding. And I mean, he founded, he was one of the founders of the South Shore Audubon Society. He ran the Sunday walks for the longest time and he just, he made such an impact on so many people. So I was very glad to be able to to talk about him and honor him in the book and, and, and talk about what he did for me in particular. Kristen, have you uh, had any chance to read any of the new research on awe? Uh, you know, I, I interviewed Dr. Keltner not too long ago, who kind of, um, he's done some of this research, but he's also bringing together a lot of it in a new book. You, I just feel like you practice this and you lead the way i think you open the the door to those of us who love the natural world but aren't sure how to how to touch that kind of awe in everyday experiences i'm not even sure i can communicate how to get in touch with it in everyday experiences but boy can you ever i mean you don't have to be you know staring at fantabulous mountains, you know, 
that were that are you know a couple of millions of years old to experience it though that is a great way to experience it um i find a lot of times it have it happened yesterday i was looking at a um echinacea purple coneflower that i grow up on the roof and there was this little teeny tiny yellow spider walking around inside the the little tiny orange spikes which are the actual flower as opposed to the, I think they're called bracts or brackets, the, the, what looks like the petals that fall down from a purple cone flower from echinacea. And it's crawling in there. And I'm thinking to myself, ooh, is he waiting for some small bug to come feed from the flower before he, he nails it? But I was just fascinated by this little tiny yellow creature crawling around inside the, the, the perfectly formed rows and columns of, of orange, yellow, uh, reddishness, poking up from the top of the, from the center of the coneflower. You can find that any, any day and you can get it from a leaf. You just pick up a leaf and examine it closely. And you're like, wait, there's a whole world going on here in this leaf. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think people forget that, you know, we look at man-made works and we're like, wow, that's amazing. And they are. But when you look at more natural stuff, there's millions of years of evolution that have gone into that design. And it is a design that is in conversation with all the other living things around it and this particular environment. So the complexity that you're looking at, and even the simplest thing, I mean, look at your own hand, look at, look at the palm of your hand and the complexity there is just incredible. So when you, if you start to tune into that, you know, when you tune into the, the the amazing stuff of the natural world both high and low from those ancient mountains to that little tiny leaf yeah you can get awe at any moment you know the landscape i was thinking about how you you experience this in a very familiar landscape of central park i mean do you go to central park how many times a week is it Every day, almost every day, that landscape is very familiar to you, right? And it, it's very seasonal. So, for example, I'm I'm mm. an, a pure advocate of spring migration. So, from the beginning of of the the height of the spring migration season till its end, I am in the park every day, unless it's pouring rain, and I'm in there um, basically at dawn, uh, and I'll spend at least three hours, but you know, maybe four or five. Um, which was rough when I was working a desk job. <laughs> I had to go to work after that. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so I, I tend to, uh, my, my, uh, there's a very intense period of, of my time in Central Park. And then, you know, summer comes and I'm like, all right, Central Park is quiet. I got my roof garden now. I'm going to spend my time there. And then um, uh, it'll pick up a little bit again in the fall, not as intensely as in the spring, because I like to have, still have friends. And they would abandon me if I mm-hmm. abandoned them in the fall the way I abandoned them in the <laughs> spring. And then things, uh, I, I like to clear out of town in the wintertime. So, you know, it's, it's very seasonal how, how much time I spend in Central Park. But during the peak of the spring migration, every day. Yeah, I, I guess what I was observing there is it's a landscape that is, you would think, very familiar to you. And yet, you know, as we were discussing... I can see you're practicing close observation and new things are, are, you know, Central Park is yielding new things 
to you all the time. And those things sometimes will come at you sideways. And it's not necessarily that you're seeing a bird you haven't seen before, though it might be that. Um, one time I was seeing a bird I've seen, you know, hundreds of thousands of times before, a black crown night heron. So I was scanning the shore for the black, black crown night heron, the shore of the lake in Central Park. And sure enough, I saw it. But what caught my attention was how the morning light was reflecting off the, the undulating water of the lake, you know, just slight undulations on the surface of the lake. But that caused the light that reflected off of it to undulate on the underside of the leaves along the shore. And mm. it was mesmerizing. And so I just stood there and absorbed that for a while. So yeah, definitely, you know, even in the most familiar places, things can come at you sideways. I mean, just looking up at the sky, for goodness sake, and, you know, the changes it will go through and the formations of the clouds, all of which are the result of different meteorological phenomena. So you can appreciate them on that level of, wow, these are cum cumulus clouds that are forming because the, the land beneath it is so heated up. It's causing hot air to rise and forming these big piles of mountainous clouds. Or you can just appreciate it for you know, the visual beauty of it. So you can really, you can really lock onto things in the most familiar places. So is Amy Cooper one of those, th those things that came at you sideways in Central Park? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's just say I, I hadn't got up at dawn for that, but you know, it, it's what happened. So. It changed your life in a lot of ways, right? Sure. Um, I mean, without a doubt, it was a, a, a turning point. Um, it opened up doors for me that I was able to walk through that hadn't maybe been open for me before. But here's the interesting thing is that it allowed me to do what I had been doing for years, um, just to do it on mm -hmm. a bigger scale and, you know, maybe to a mm -hmm. wider audience. Um, because, you know, for years I'd been going into the New York City public schools and uh, getting the kids out, out of the concrete and into whatever green spaces were nearby and away from the pixels on their cell phones and their devices and their TVs and instead getting them to focus on that incredibly complex natural world that they may not have ever thought of. Um, so, you know, I've been doing that for many, many, many years um, I've been, you know, fighting for for justice for African Americans and equality for queer people for many, 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 many years, and so this just allowed me to keep doing those things, maybe on a bigger platform. So, mm. um, you know, if if there's something good that came out of that, that's maybe one of those things. When you describe the shorthand of what happened that morning, what do you say? Shorthand. The shorthand is what's important about the collision of these two people is what it revealed about how deeply racial bias runs through our country. And I think for a lot of white people, because, you know, we black people, we know, we live it. But for, for a lot of white people, I think this was a revelation. I think there's a little bit of a tendency to think, oh, Obama was president, so racism is over. And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> here it is. Um, bubbling up in this very liberal city from this very pre pre presumably progressive person um, and, and in ways you might not expect. And that is important, not because of her. She's not the focus. She's, she's a distraction. It's the bias that's important. And that bias 
popped up later that same day in a much more significant way in that that bias, that racial bias, is what made a white police officer in Minneapolis think that it was okay to kneel on a black man's neck until he was dead. And that racial bias popped up in the other police officers around him who decided there was nothing they needed to do to stop that from happening. Um, It pops up in a lot of ways in our society from the fact that, you know, the largely black and brown population of Washington, D.C. doesn't have any representation, whereas, you know, the rural white population of Wyoming, which is smaller than D.C.'s population, gets two senators. And the rural white population of Vermont, which is smaller than D.C.'s, gets two senators. That's not to say that Vermont and Wyoming shouldn't have representation. That's to say that the black and brown people of D.C. should have that same representation. And yet that racial bias has kept that from happening for decades. Those are the things we need to focus on and try to change. You know, I I have to say, living in the city where George Floyd was killed, I and I was aware of what happened with you what Amy Cooper did that morning with the cell phone recording and the call to the police that you were threatening her when you were trying to tell her to leash your dog and the dog didn't belong there. I had no idea that those, those things happened on the same day. And I, I just want to read something uh, from the book, how you put this. It's not about Amy Cooper. What's important is what her actions revealed how deeply and widely racial bias runs in the U.S., focusing on her is a distraction, and it lets too many people off the hook from the hard, ongoing examination of themselves. Um, Who is it that it lets off the hook? I mean, all of us? Who? All of us. Absolutely all of us. I mean, you know... you know, the, uh, the way I put it uh, in one thing I, I, I wrote in the aftermath of all of that incident is, you know, everybody wants to, to crucify her, but not examine the fact that, you know, maybe as a white woman yourself, you're in the elevator and a black man comes on and you clutch your purse a little closer. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's something you need to examine. You know, the fact that, you know, we're high-fiving maybe that, oh, let's, let's, let's go put that woman in jail from Central Park and we can high-five each other. Meanwhile, you know, the Supreme Court is rolling back affirmative action. And that's something we have allowed to happen. And that's something that we're not fighting back against. So, you know, this is, this is why I say it's a distraction and we need to focus on what matters. Yeah, I wonder if you have any indication... Because I know there, I know Amy Cooper said some things in the wake of this, uh, but I didn't follow it that closely because, of course, we were consumed with what had happened with George Floyd and everything that flowed from that. So, do you do you have any sense that years on from this, Amy Cooper understands what you've described in the book? I don't, but I wouldn't because I'm not in communication with her. And you know what? I don't need anything from her. Uh, I'm leading my life. Hopefully she's leading hers. So um, I, I, I really don't know. Uh, as I, I say in the book, you know, ultimately she is the person who decides 
um, you know, who she is by what she does going forward from here. Mm. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas in a Conversation with Christian Cooper. He's a comics writer. I want to talk to him a little bit about that before we close. He's the host of National Geographic's Extraordinary Birder. And we're discussing his new memoir, Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. You know, that Better Living Through Birding is intriguing, kind of funny. Is that a a title that you... (laughs) I wondered if there was debate about that. That's something that you embrace. Fill me in. What's the story Uh, of the title, Christian? uh, I I was asked if I wanted to write a memoir, and I'm like, oh, who the hell would want to read my memoir? And then I found out that... (laughs) Really? um, uh, Well, and then I found out that Colin Jost, I guess is how you pronounce his name, from from Saturday Night Live, had written a memoir. And I'm like, he's 12. He's 12 years old. What has he got to say? (laughs) So I'm like, if he can write a memoir, I I can write a memoir. So, um, yeah, but also it was a way to sort of those things that I've been talking about and fighting for for a long time, it was, it was a way to maybe um, personalize them, to, to draw people into that conversation through a very personal story and then in a very personal way. So, so that's what I was kind of trying to do with the memoir. So when you know, someone said, oh, do you want to write a memoir? I was just, you know, thinking about it. And that was the first title that popped into my head. Literally the oh, first thing is. that popped, okay. yeah, the first thing that popped into my head and yeah. it stuck. It, it totally stuck. And I'm, I'm glad I liked the title. That's good, because that's, that's a little unusual. Um, you know, until I read your memoir, I knew very little about kind of the back scenes life of a comics writer. This was super interesting. And as I thought about what you did and do as you create a world in comics or graphics, you know, it seemed like, it seemed not that far apart from what you do when you're when you're out birding and you're contemplative and it's somewhat meditative and you can be immersed in that world. Are there, are there any, you know, is there any crossover, I guess, to the two experiences? I would have said absolutely not, except that in your description just now, I realized what what you said about immersion is absolutely true. Um, When I am, birding i'm immersed in the natural world and as i said you know the internal monologue falls away it's kind of the opposite when i am you know writing a comic book story or any kind of fiction i am traveling inward rather than focusing on outward and i am immersed in an internal world that i am constructing um so yes, there, there is definitely a, an immersion. It's just in opposite directions. With the birding, mm. you're moving out. And with the, the, the writing of fiction and constructing these fabulous worlds, I'm turning in. Mm. Are, are you still doing it? Oh, I don't think I'll ever be able to stop. I mean, I, I don't necessarily... <laughs> uh, and by, by doing it, I mean sort of constructing worlds, um, um, telling stories... Um, am I still doing comics? Sometimes, occasionally, rarely. Um, there was a comic I did actually at the invitation of DC Comics, the people who do Superman and Wonder Woman, um, to 
try to tell something of my experience of the incident in Central Park as a comic. And I was like, that's crazy talk. Mm. There's no superhero angle mm. on this. And this time they came up with the title, whereas I, I came up with Better Living Through Burning. Uh, the editor at DC Comics said, well, we have a title for you because I was struggling. I'm like, this is crazy. I can't do this. And they said, your title is It's a Bird, which is, if you know the Superman <laughs> mythos, is a play on yeah. Superman. Look up in the sky. It's a plane. It's a bird. It's Superman. I'm like, perfect title. And as soon as I heard the title, the story just started populating in my head. It was remarkable how just that title opened the floodgates wow. And, and I realized the, the way to enter that story was not through superheroes, but through a magical realist approach. And that's what I ended up writing. And Aletha Martinez illustrated it gorgeously. Um, it's available free online and it's a very short story, um, but it is an exploration through a magical realist approach of what it's like for someone who is Black in the outdoors and some of the challenges we confront and how those tie in to some of the high profile losses we African-Americans have suffered like the George Floyd murder. Hmm. So when, when DC came to you with this proposal, was that, had you written about what, you know, in anything beyond social media, had you written something full length about, what had happened in Central Park? Or was this really the first time you, you told a, a story at that, at that length? It was the first time I had tackled it. And it was not, and I have to be clear, it's not a, a, a retelling of the incident. It's more sort of like a, a collection of, you know, obviously drawn from that incident, but also from other incidents mm-hmm. that I know, other Black people have experienced, you know, when they go outdoors, when they go birding or whatever they're trying to do in a public space and the challenges, shall we say, that they can encounter simply because of race. Um, So it was sort of amalgamation of a lot of different things into this one story of this young man who decides, and that's not me because I'm 60. So, but this kid in the story is a teenager and he decides to go out birding and he happens to take a particularly old pair of binoculars that were handed down from his grandfather and what happens as a result. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I guess I was asking that because I wondered if it was the first time beyond the telling of this happened and this happened and this is what I thought, you know, you were making some meaning. You had some time to think more philosophically about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that is what that story is, 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 is. It's an attempt to sort of dramatize and, and broaden the perspective of what happened and what happens to other people. Um, and then in the final moment, because I can't give it a happy ending, but to give maybe a moment of grace mm-hmm. to those we have lost. Mm-hmm. So the comics, the comic does not have a happy ending either? Nope. Mm. Can't. Mm. Because, you know, how can it? Uh, It's funny because sometimes in fiction you can do that. You can give the happy ending to a a story or to to an issue that you don't get in real life. Um, and, And that is, can sometimes be the role of fiction. 
um, I think about um, the online gay and lesbian comic I wrote um, years ago. And one of, it was just a little aside, but one of the things, one of the gifts I felt like I needed to give the queer community was that they're talking casually and they say, and they said, oh yeah, ever since the cure for AIDS, you know, things have been like this. And just that one little line was just sort of like a gift of saying, hey, you know what? In this world, they've cured it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But I couldn't do that with the story. I couldn't do that, do that with the story because it, it would not have been true. It would not have felt right because we are still very much in this country, mired in that toxic racial stew that just drags us all down. And, um, but what I could do is I could at least to those who had fallen to that toxic race, racial stew, I could, I could let them rise above it. And that's what I tried to do. You know, I, I, I'm curious as to whether the visibility of what happened in Central Park and what you're doing with National Geographic and the writing that you're doing. I mean, do you have a sense that you're reaching kids like you were? Kids that, in all different dimensions, but kids that just don't feel like they can be honest or, I guess, forthcoming about who they, they can't show the world who they are. They feel like they have to keep it concealed. I mean, do you have any sense of that? Have you heard from kids about that? Um, you know, I sure as heck hope so. Um, I think one of the, one of the things, one of, the, one of my most fervent hopes for the TV show is that kids will look at it and see on, you know, as the host of maybe, you know, the most prominent birding show in quite some time is a person who looks like them. And as we all know, um, or it has been said many times, it's very hard to imagine yourself doing something if you don't see others, others like you already doing. Mm. So I am really hopeful that a lot of black and brown kids will tune into the show and say, hey, he looks like me. Maybe I can do that too. And that would be awesome, particularly mm. because birding has been overwhelmingly white for so long, for a lot of different reasons. But it, it is a deficit we need to fix, not just because it's a moral imperative, but because we have to fix it if we're going to save the birds. We have lost um, one, uh, uh, roughly a, a quarter of our birds in North America, or no, actually closer to a third of our birds in North America just in my lifetime, since I started birding as a kid. Hmm. We've lost almost a third of the birds in North America. Um, and I'm not talking about species, I'm talking about the numbers, the raw numbers of birds has hmm. gone down. If there were 3 billion before, there were 2 billion now. And, you know, we need to fix that. We need to reverse that. And because the demographics of the country are changing, if we don't engage black and brown people, all people of all kinds with nature and with the wild and with birds, there's going to be no constituency for the birds moving forward. It's going to be perceived as, ah, birding, that's a thing that white people do. And it's going to be dismissed by a lot of lawmakers, by a lot of people, by a lot of voters. We can't have that if we're going to save the birds and save this, this, this country and this planet because the, the birds are really being a canary in the coal mine for us. You know, that loss of one third is telling us this environment is in trouble and it's going to affect us too. So we need to pay attention and we need to get everybody involved in the fight and we need to reverse this loss of our birds and this preservation of nature and the wild and our habitats. 
And so if the show does that, if it, if it, if it engages all people in birding and gives them more of an appreciation, but in particular, if it gets a lot of black and brown kids engaged, mission accomplished. If it does nothing else, if the show does nothing else and I get one season and that's it and I'm done, but it's done that, I'm a happy camper. Hmm. Hmm. Just a question about uh, the diminishing number of birds. How much of that is about the diminishing number of insects? Um, read a book about that recently. It's startling how many insects we're losing. And how much of that is habitat and I ask you that as a as someone who lives in a very dense city that, you know, builds and builds. Where, 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 which one do you think is most responsible for the diminishing number of birds? I can't quantify it. There is There are a lot of things going on. Um, habitat loss is huge. But concurrently, there's climate change which causes its own kind of habitat loss as, as habitats change because of climate change and are lost as a result of that. Um, perfect example is, um, you know, when uh, Extraordinary Birder, the show went to Hawaii. And one of the problems is that, um, you know, Westerners brought mosquitoes, which had never been in Hawaii before, and they brought mosquito-borne illnesses that are wiping out the native Hawaiian birds. But at altitude those birds still have some, some territory where they can exist because it's too cool there for the mosquitoes. Well, guess what climate change is doing? Mm. It's letting those mosquitoes mm-hmm. get higher and higher so that soon there'll be no more real estate for the native birds to go where they can be free of mosquitoes. So they are fighting desperately to, to save those birds and find a way to, to slow this progression of the mosquitoes. So that's, you know, is that, is that habitat loss? Is that climate change? It's both. Um, you know, yeah. it's how um, uh, climate change is causing our coastal wetlands to flood um, at a different time of the year so that the habitat that used to be used by seaside sparrows is no longer available to them on the schedule that they have evolved to use. You know, is that habitat loss? Is that climate change? It's both. So this is what we're confronting. Um, it, it's really, you know, grassland, and you're absolutely right about the, the loss of the insects. It's, it's all connected. And, and if we don't start to tackle it in all the ways we can, it's just going to get worse. Um, our grassland birds in particular have been slammed by loss of habitat, the loss of the bugs, that's what they live on. So um, happily, some people are starting to take, uh, you know, matters into their own hands. Because I always get so frustrated when people say, oh, you know, the government should do something about this. And then they sit on their rumps. Mm-hmm. You know what? <laughs> if you wait for the government to do something, you'll be waiting till you're dead and this planet is gone. So get off your backside because there is something we can all do as individuals to make things better. And one of the things that's happened is that this guy named Doug Tallamy has started something called Homegrown National Park. And what he does is he says, you know what? You, you go plant some of these native plants. And you put them in your backyard. You put them on your terrace. You put them on your fire escape. You get a pot and you put it on your roof. And you grow these native plants so that our native bugs have some habitat now. That's why it's homegrown national park. Don't wait Hmm. for the government to make a national park. Make your own. Collectively, let's make our own. I think that's brilliant. And I think we should all be engaged with that. Great idea. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I want to close with a couple of birding tips because you scattered them through the memoir and (laughs) there was a lot I didn't know about this. One birding tip, 
avoid trying to bird in the presence of non-birders. Oh, it's so painful. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> I, I, oh, Do I, tell. I've tried it. And, you know, you're, you're ready and willing to spend the next 20 minutes puzzling, staking out this one particular bird, waiting for it to show again, <laughs> waiting to puzzle out all the field marks so you can identify it. And meanwhile, everyone around you is like, oh, we are so done with you. It's just, it doesn't work. It does not work. <laughs> okay, because you can't, uh, you cannot exert the, the time and the patience when you're with right, non-birders. Exactly. They want they want to hike, and you want to hike okay. at like five percent of their pace, so you can drink in the birds as you go. <laughs> All right. Okay. Here's another one. Look at the bird, and 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 I've done this, and amen, Christian. <laughs> Look at the bird with your naked eye and keep your eye on the bird as you bring your binoculars to your face. Absolutely. Why? Why was I doing it wrong for so many years? Absolutely. That was the first trick that my birding mentor, Elliot Kuttner, taught me. Um, and it made all the difference in the world. And it's the first thing I, tr uh, I teach, whether it's the students I take out uh, from the public schools or whether it is grownups on a bird walk, it's the first thing I have them do. I'm like, look at that lamppost over there. Look at it with your naked eye. Now, do not take your eyes off it and bring the binoculars to your eye. Boom, there it is in your binoculars. Otherwise, you're looking around with the binoculars, waving like a, like a, a, a branch in a wheat field or something, <laughs> whipped by the wind, and you're not seeing a darn thing. So, yeah, you gotta, that's a great technique to master. Okay, and one last question. I, I wonder if there's a place that you've always aspired to bird that you haven't been yet. Oh, yeah, of course. We all have these lists of places we're itching to go. For me right now, I would have to say it's Bhutan, um, just because I know a few oh. birders who have gone and they have come back raving. And partly, I guess, because it's been it was closed off to the West for decades. I think it's only in the last 20 years, maybe a little bit more than that, that they opened up um, and let, started letting Westerners in. And so it's supposed to be unspoiled. The people are supposed to be you know, wonderfully welcoming. And Asia, the Himalayas, pheasants that are just knock your socks off amazing. Um, so I, I'm itching to go to Bhutan before it gets overrun and spoiled. Well, Christian, it's still unspoiled. I was there last November for the Black Necked oh, Crane Festival. <laughs> <laughs> With a group of, of people who love books. <laughs> and it is, oh my gosh, it is all that and more. It is every bit as extraordinary as you think it is. So mm. I wish I wish that, that adventure for you. Thank you. <laughs> Christian Cooper, his new memoir is titled Better Living Through Birding. Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. Thank you so much for the conversation. Oh, it's been a total pleasure. <laughs>